Cerise Mayo, a resident of Red Hook, New York, was tending to her bees one summer evening. Beekeeping had been legalized in New York City only months ago in March of that same year, and she, like many others in the area, decided to start her hive as a hobby. One might think that an urban setting such as New York would be less than ideal for bees who forage on the pollen of flowers, but the Yellow Jackets found something just as sweet to satiate themselves with. As the sun set on the concrete jungle, Cerise noticed that the returning bees added a new color to the sky. Not yellow, but red. What had they gotten into? Cerise didn't know it at the time, but such a curious oddity would set off a chain of events that would paint the streets red with not only blood, but cherries. Therese was not the only beekeeper in the area that noticed the red bees and the watery red honey they had been producing. Tim O'Neill, another beekeeping resident of Red Hook who noticed the red honey, was immediately concerned. He suggested that the honey be tested in a lab before anyone tried consuming it as the color could have occurred because the bees confused motor fluid from a local bus depot for nectar due to its sweet taste. That September, O'Neill would send samples of his hive to a lab for testing. When the results came back the following month, it was determined that FDNC red number 40, the type of food dye used in maraschino cherries, was found in the honey. Bees had been seen around a nearby cherry factory, sampling puddles of red syrup on the sidewalk outside. Dell's maraschino cherries factory occupied an unmarked 38,000 square foot building in Red Hook and was a staple of the neighborhood, providing jobs to residents of the area since they moved there from a smaller building in Carroll Garden in the 70s. The CEO, Arthur Mondella, was the third generation of his family to run the business, and he expanded considerably since he took over in 1983. While he didn't make any comments to reporters about the situation, Mondella did reach out to the founder of the New York City Beekeepers Association, Andrew Cote, to come up with a solution for the red honey. They were able to come up with a simple solution to the contamination by installing some screens, tightening seals, and controlling spills. Once these countermeasures were in place, the red honey phenomenon was no more. Cote noted that Mondella took the situation very seriously, despite the fact that beekeeping had previously been illegal and he could have just as easily tried to have the beekeepers shut down again. Mondella was well received around the factory and regarded as a good leader. Many of his employees were ex-cons and some were even homeless. He was happy to give salary advances or even loans that weren't heavily pursued. He provided free lunch and went out of his way to keep a human workforce despite his $7 million investment into automation. He went out of his way to help the people around him however he could. He was also known, however, to be short-tempered or even paranoid at times. If there was a mistake on the floor, he was there screaming his head off. He wanted what he wanted, exactly as described and delivered on time. Anything contrary would be met with the full force of his wrath. He expected fairly rough hours including late nights, weekends, and many holidays. He was also known to carry a gun which only added to his intimidation. People were fired often, but anyone who wanted to come back was given second, third, and even fourth chances. In 2010, a gold-plated Desert Eagle, a $50,000 Rolex, and about $60,000 cash were stolen from the office. Mandela, concerned it was an inside job, interrogated several of his most loyal men and promptly fired them. Mandela was also known to have had an affinity for cocaine. He was known to snort coke in his office or on his yacht from time to time. He was also affiliated with the convicted marijuana smuggler, Salvatore Capecci, who had been previously married to his sister. Above all of his other rules, Mondella was very particular about the back of the factory near the garage where he kept his cars. He specified that the floors were not to be sprayed in that area. Workers noted 
that there was always an exotic scent back there, that the thick scent of cherry production just couldn't mask. Mandela wrote it off as wet wooden pallets, but some of the workers could identify it right away. Neighbors of the building had commented about the scent of marijuana coming from the factory, but dismissed it as employees smoking on their breaks. Around the time of the bee situation, reports were filed about the possibility of marijuana being grown in the factory, but they were never confirmed and eventually dismissed. Local authorities hoped that the media attention on the factory would pull the curtain back a bit and help the investigation, but eventually, the case was shelved and mostly forgotten about. Things grew volatile in 2014 when he divorced his then-wife, Yevenya Mandela. He became engaged shortly after to an old flame, Gina Hollis. He confided in a longtime employee he was trying to get sober, but his mood became more explosive than ever. It was around that same time a new district attorney, Kenneth Thompson, took over in Brooklyn, looking to close up open case files from the previous tenure. A file was opened for Dells, not concerning marijuana, but rather involving the illegal dumping of waste materials, and it was decided that the Department of Environmental Protection would pay Modella a visit. On February 24th, 2015, two dozen investigators arrived at the factory for a surprise visit with a warrant. Despite Mandela's best attempts to keep them out, they soon descended on the garage. While examining some shelves, they discovered a false wall. They informed Mandela that they intended to send for a warrant to search behind it. Upon hearing this, Mandela excused himself to the bathroom where he locked the door. Police tried to get him to come out, but he refused. He sat in that bathroom, contemplating the decisions he'd made that led up to that moment. Alone. On a toilet. Cops outside the door waiting to arrest him. After they failed in persuading him to open the door, Mandela asked that they bring his sister Joanne. When she arrived, Mandela told her to take care of his kids through the door. With his affairs in order, he figured now was as good a time as any. Mandela was a man who valued complete control over every aspect of his life. Jail wasn't an option he could live with. He pulled out a 357 Magnum he carried in a concealed holster on his ankle. He pressed the cold metal barrel to his temple and squeezed the trigger. The police discovered a ladder behind the false wall leading down to the 2,500 square foot basement with space for approximately 100 marijuana plants, with LED grow lights along with 100 pounds of harvested marijuana and $130,000 cash. There was also a garage space where several vintage cars including a Porsche and a Bentley were found. Had Mandela lived, he might have gotten away without any jail time. Two to three years in jail was possible, but probation was more likely. Dells was charged with criminal possession of marijuana in the first degree and with failure to comply with laws regulating to the illegal dumping of wastewater and fined $1.2 million. No further charges were brought against the businesses the DA saw no reason to destroy a successful company providing jobs to the community. No evidence was discovered that pointed to Mandela selling the marijuana, but the sheer volume implied it. That, and many other questions regarding the Breaking Bad level subterranean grow room would remain unanswered in his absence. Mandela's daughters Dana and Dominique took over the company in their father's absence. They managed to keep the business open in the wake of the disaster and worked tirelessly through the following weeks to provide damage control. They managed to keep most of their customers, even convincing a few who initially left after the raid, to return. They attempted to sue the city in 2016 for recklessness and negligence regarding how the responding officers handled their father's death. But the suit was thrown out as Mandela was never in police custody and no one could have reasonably expected him to off himself over environmental violations. Dana and Dominique decided to continue running the company themselves as it was all their father had left them. He didn't have a home, and his cars were seized as part of the investigation. They worked hard to keep his memory alive and the business booming, being the fourth generation of their family to manage Dells. Today, Dells is listed as an official woman-owned business, and is still committed to providing cherries with as much passion and the same values as they've had for the last 60 years. <laughs>